Hello and welcome to episode 26 of God's Own Scale. Happy year. I hope you're all well, safe and snug. It's a very wintry scene outside of my window as it is across much of the UK. Uh, This episode is where all hell lets loose. Uh, And I talk to David Vasilevsky, author of The New Kid on the Block, The New World War II Rules, All Hell Let Loose. And also one of the principal playtesters, good friend of David, uh, Charles Roundtree. It was great to have both of them on the show. um, And we have a great chat and a, a real dive into this new set of rules. Uh, producing a new set of rules in a crowded market is tough at the best of times, but without the front window of the show season and other avenues to spread the word, David has to be congratulated on what is an excellent project uh, and has me excited enough to dig out my small Russian army of Heroics and Ross that have sat in the loft for a few years. And the trouble is, I need someone for them to fight. Uh, so, uh, we are in yet another national lockdown, and this one has no end in sight. The only light at the end of the tunnel being the vaccination rollout, which, if to be believed, is our only route out of lockdown. Estimates of spring are being given, but by the government, and as I've said before, Joe 6 is my own personal target for this year, where I've set my sights on, uh, really hoping that that show goes ahead and we can all once again meet up even if we're all still wearing masks and with some sensible social distancing measures in place i think it'll be a big win for us if that show can go ahead uh, july the 4th is the date uh, in sheffield uh, details on the bacchus miniatures website uh, if you haven't been before uh, but if you love this scale if you like this podcast uh, then they'll be plenty for you to see and do at that show if it goes ahead and I really do hope so. On the hobby front I'm in a bit of a slump to be honest. Uh, my mojo has slipped a tad. Uh, we all go through a slump in motivation from time to time. The one consolation is that I've got no gaming group waiting on me to finish figures for uh, for a game. Um, but still, my participation in the Analog Hobbies Painting Challenge is keeping me motivated to keep putting brush to figure. But I am diversifying somewhat by painting the figures for the Hellboy board game from Mantic Games. I'm a huge Hellboy fan of the comics, not necessarily the films so much. Uh, and as everybody knows, I'm a huge Mantic fanboy as well. Um, the Antietam project is really close to completion, actually. I've just eight bases, I think it is, of Union infantry to go, along with uh, just a few cavalry, uh, a little bit of artillery crew, and some generals. It's really not a lot to do on that now. I'm really pleased with how that's developed. I'll see how I go in the next week with them, and I'll report back. It could be by the time I record again that they are done. I do really need also to take some time to sit down and get some prepping done uh, where I've got figures undercoated and and ready to go. There's nothing worse than 
having some spare time to sit down and paint, but yet you've not got any figures prepped. So uh, I need to get that done. Um, I think the AWI Continental Army from Bacchus will be the first that I get sprayed up. I've actually ran out of spray cans, actually. That's just reminded me. I must make a note of that. Um, that I'll make a start on the uh, Continental Army uh, for Guildford Courthouse, hopefully fairly soon. Uh, and of course, speaking about the Joy of Six, I've got to make a start on the uh, forces and figures for my SOM game at the Joy of Six. So as we sit now, there's roughly six months to go before that, which is plenty of time to get sorted. Okay, uh, keep listening. Uh, after the interview, I'll just have a little chat with you there about one or two things going on. But you're not here to listen to me wittering on. You're here for the interview. Let's talk about six. Okay, uh, welcome to, I think this is now episode 26 of God's Own Scale podcast. I'm recording this uh, with a couple of gentlemen on the afternoon of New Year's Eve, 31st of December 2020. And what a year it's been, goodness me. Um, I'm here to talk with a couple of gentlemen involved in a brand new set of World War II rules called All All Hell let loose. Can't quite get my tongue around that. That was a difficult one. But I have two guests with me, David Vasilevsky and Mr. Charles Roundtree, who are going to take us all the way through those rules and tell us all about them and how good they are and why you need to go out and buy them. So first of all, hello, David. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Lovely to be here. Good. Glad you can join me. Thanks for taking the time out of your day. And Charles, how are you? I'm 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 fantastic, Sean, and I'm absolutely delighted to be invited on. No problem at all. I couldn't think of uh, two finer gentlemen to speak to on a New Year's Eve afternoon. Uh, to be honest, let's imagine we're down the pub, uh, having having a drink and a mince pie, and talking about our favourite subject. Um, so, uh, David, it, it's really down to you because you, you reached out to me once you published these rules or when they were on the verge of being published, uh, to see if I'd like to have a look at them, knowing that I'm no expert in World War II. So that was a bit of a leap of faith, wasn't it? <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I reached out to you because I've been a long-time listener of the podcast. and I've always loved Six Mill, played a lot of Six Mill since being at school. Yeah. Um, not exclusively, but a lot of Six Mill. And it, it, it's a bit of a niche within a niche hobby, isn't it? Yeah, it's my um, favourite phrase. <laughs> so I, I figured it was a, a good way to try and get get the get the rules name out there. Otherwise, the danger is you you publish it and then no one buys it because they've never heard of it. Yeah, and I think 
I think in this year of all years, it's difficult to get that word out there, isn't it? Because we haven't got the shows, which is the normal shop window uh, mm. for us to advertise these things. We're, and shows can generate a real buzz, can't they? Around yeah. something that's that's new on the market. But we'll we'll dive into the the nuts and bolts of what all hell let loose is shortly. But as with uh, any new guest on the show, I like to find out what's under the hood, what's under the bonnet or in the trunk, I'm not quite sure what the metaphor is there, uh, of what, of, uh, of the, uh, of any guest that comes on. So, uh, gives a little bit of a hobby biography, if you would, David. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess like, I, I think we're of a similar age and like most blokes our age born in the UK, I started out with ethics, plastic soldiers, reading 2000 AD comic. Oh, yes. Um, commando comic. Um, we've always been in a family that's liked to read a lot. I always remember my dad coming into my bedroom one day and just chucking a, a, co- a copy of The Hobbit onto the bed and me thinking, wow, what's all this about? Yeah. And, uh, he, he didn't know what, it, what what doors he was opening for. Um, then, towards the end of primary school, like many kids, D&D suddenly appeared on the horizon. Um, I remember going to a, a shop in Southport in the northwest of the UK um, called Wayfarer's Arcade. It used to sell said D&D books and Ralph Harper and Grenadier and the old Golden Line set of D&D miniatures and the very early Citadel miniatures. Um, I remember my mum used to sit down with me with Humbrol enamels and used to paint them. And that's really how I first got into miniature miniatures. Um, high school, got there. Hutton Grammar School near Preston. D&D Club was really popular. We used to play role-playing games, obviously. But we also used to play games like Squad Leader. Oh, yes. Um, do you remember Laserburn? I, I do remember Laserburn. I've still got it, yes. Yeah. We used to play with 15mm scale Traveller um, yeah. RPG miniatures with that. Um, but, of course, the, the main game was always Warhammer Fantasy Battle. Yeah, uh, the Golden Games Workshop stuff. Um, but there were definitely there were people in the club that preferred the historicals, and there were people in the club that preferred the fantasy. And I have always satisfied both those periods, if we can call them that. That you know, I enjoy fantasy and sci-fi games, but I also love history. Um, I mean, coming back to Games Workshop, the games that really grabbed me were Epic, which was six mil sci-fi. Yeah. And much later, Warmaster, which was 10 mil fantasy. Yeah. Um, so I've con- constantly found myself drawn back to the smaller scale figures because of the scale of the battles you can fight. Um, and then I met Charles in, in sixth form at Hutton Grammar. Um, and we, we, between us, got into Napoleonic's historical wargaming. Um, I think it was Bruce Quarry's rules. Napoleon's, Napoleon's campaigns in miniature. Goodness me. And we, uh, we saw this little advert in miniature Wargames Illustrated and all. Was it miniature Wargames, I think? Back yeah. then? Yeah. yeah. Wargames, yeah. Yeah, Adler miniatures. Um, we, we sent off for a couple of pounds worth and, and were blown away. And I think this was before Bacchus were really kicking about and on the scene, really. Yes. Um, and Bacchus are fantastic figures, but Ever since there, being sort of 16, 17-year-old lads, we've, we've always bought Adler when it's come down to Napoleonics, American Civil War, um, 
th- those are the figures that really grabbed us. Um, and since then, really, it's been me and Charles on and off, and we've both had periods where we haven't played much or been diverted into other hobbies and interests, but we keep coming back to playing six mil, and we like our World War Two, Cold War, Napoleonic, American Civil War. Um, yeah, um, that, that's really where that's what, what's led me down the, the pathway to, to getting back into six mil World War Two again. I can only assume that in sixth form you were doing pure and applied mathematics if you were playing Bruce Quarry. <laughs> we, we, both, we both did A-level history together. Oh, uh, okay. Next to each other in the same class. Uh, we, we actually touched on uh, sort of very early Napoleonic period um, in history. So, yeah, it was it was that really. But, yeah, those, those early sets of rules, old school rules from the 60s and 70s, they, they're hard work. <laughs> they went through a phase, and I know that from my collection of all the old wargaming books, the Featherstons and the Grants, etc., um, which were really just rolling a, a d6 and counting casualties, uh, into that sort of late 70s, early 80s, where goodness me, they were, they were hard work, weren't they? Yeah. I, I'm thinking of like to the sound of the guns by Tabletop Games and the Newbury fast play rules which were uh, not actually title at all. Um, and then those Bruce Quarry rules in Napoleon's, Napoleon's campaigns in miniatures, where I think there'd be a, a different... Uh, French infantry might move eight inches and Russian infantry only seven inches, and depending <laughs> on what formation they're in. It's like, oh, my goodness, I haven't got enough brain space to retain all this information. Yeah. Did yeah. you, you actually use those, did you, then, to play with the Adler figures? We did. Um, we, I can remember using, right at the beginning, um, we actually played the little Airfix figures and we glued them down. That's how sad we were. We glued them onto cardboard counters to represent the footprints of units. Wow. Um, but then once we got, I think we bought some Heroics and Ross and then Adler, and then we started painting in earnest and, and building up collections and and, and wargaming properly in inverted commas. Yeah. But that's really when, looking back on it, when we first started to tinker with rules because we realised quite quickly you can't really play Waterloo in an afternoon using Bruce Quarry's rules. <laughs> no, you can't. No. Um, so we started messing about with rules back then. Right, so so there's, there was an early uh, genesis of uh, interest in in rules writing, even in your formative years, then. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. As a middle-aged bloke, when you look back, you think you think back to sort of nostalgia and what you started out doing, and it's funny. It comes full circle. I think for a lot of people our age, um, my interests now are turning back to the stuff I started out doing: that Napoleonic, that World War Two, that early Warhammer Fantasy battle stuff. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm I'm interested in those those rules, those periods, but but doing it my way, doing you know, yeah. me and my friends want to play the big games with the smaller scales. Yeah, well, that that really echoes with himself, to be honest, David, and uh, we'll perhaps touch on that uh, a bit later on. Uh, that sort of nostalgic feel that we get for some of these things mm. we did as a kid, but never had the money to. We've got plenty of time, but no money. Yes. Now there's money, but no time. It's uh, yeah. It's just one of the sad facts of life, isn't it? Um, 
Charles, uh, let's let's hear about your background. And I guess there's a convergence uh, come sixth form. But uh, what were you doing prior to then? Well, uh, you know, it, it, it's very similar. Um, my I started out with um, 54 millimeter FX figures. Um, I know uh, I was playing with those probably age five or six. Um, you know, I think the family for some reason had had a bunch and it was called in from cousins and 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 um uncles and everything else and and so I I had these these huge fifty four mil uh ethics figures that I used used to used to play with uh me and me and my brother uh, whenever I could persuade him to have a game. Uh always made him beat the Germans. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 won too many games, um, so I might have to apologise to him. Now I'm, I'm thinking about it, um, and that that's kind of really early on. And there, there was clearly there was there was no rhyme nor reason. It was just oh let's let's just shoot each each other and 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 so on. And I I know I was loading matchsticks into uh, into um, toy um, cannons and um, tanks. I, I had a Centurion tank that, that allowed you to fire uh, matchsticks uh, down it. So I used to set all the uh, all the figures up and, and and then just knock them down religiously with my uh, firing matchsticks out. Um, and that so that's my earliest memory really of of that. Uh, my dad gave me his his copy of The Hobbit, uh, and I think I read that something like ten or twelve times. Um, before I was about eight, uh, and I went on to the Lord of the Rings by the time I was nine, and you know I, I was really a precocious uh, kid and a, and a reader, and I, I just absolutely devoured it. Um, and then I kind of moved moved on to the um, Steve Jackson um, um, the books, where you you kind of um, chose your own story. That was. That was my introduction to role playing games, um, and I didn't I didn't encounter uh, a rule set. Uh, I didn't encounter anything organised until I got to to high school, um, and then I just kind of stumbled one day. I, I don't think it was my first year. I think it was second or third year into a uh, a room where some kids were playing D and D, and I kind of ended up sticking along. Uh, and I remember my first few experiences were absolutely awful. Um, so I decided I was going to DM because the game could, shouldn't be that bad. Um, and so through high school, I was I was really just uh, into the role playing games. I just did D and D uh, and a little bit of uh, uh, the old Merp game. Ah, um, yes. Yeah, and you know, talk about mathematics for for, yeah. for Merp. Ah, uh, that was. That was such a disappointment, I have to say. Uh, I, I know there are devotees out there, and you know that's that's what kind of like that was. That's great, but oh, I so looked forward to to getting that. You know, you know, I was such a big Tolkien fan, and and the game was just unplayable. Um. <laughs> the the cover of of that promised so much. I remember seeing it advertised in. Uh, it would have been a white dwarf, I guess, back then. Uh, and the covers promised so much with that Balrog rising out uh, in the background, or certainly the version I got. 
Um, and I was like you, I was, I was incredibly disappointed with what I got, to be honest. And I don't think we ever played it, actually, in my group. No, uh, I, I, I think I might have started a game uh, with some, some, some guys and just tried it, but just never really, never really got my head around it and got to grips with it and, and, and you know, just went straight back to the D&D. Yeah. Um, and then... Um, after after high school, I I went to Hutton for sixth form, uh, and I think I met David for the first time actually at um, the D and D club, um, and I think it was more or less immediately after that we had a uh, history class, and um, I just sat down and David came in and it was kind of like, oh right great, and he sat down next to me and and that was it. Uh, for the next two years, we were practically inseparable, um, and um, you know, along with uh, about four or five other friends, we were we were the kind of the heart and soul of, of role playing at at Houghton. And um, I got dragged along to the after school um, figures and wargaming club, which was more or less exclusively, I think, at that time, it was either Warhammer. Uh, fantasy battles, or it was uh, 40k, and so my introduction to um, wargaming was was actually um, uh, chipping in, and I think we we they were doing some some offer where you could get some basic troops of each of the different races for Warhammer Fantasy Battle, and I think it was about four or five of us chipped in, uh, and I ended up getting orcs, um, orcs and goblins. It was the plastic. It was the plastic box set where you got ten orcs, ten skavens, ten humans, and whatever. That, that, uh, uh, yes, I remember that. So, so I I had some orc figures that I bought for for the D and D. So I painted those up with my enamels. Uh, then we got uh, all this plastic stuff arrived, um, and then you know I started to fight my first battle. Uh, and I got ripped to shreds by somebody. Uh, I don't know whether they had elven war dancers or something else, but basically my, my orcs went forward and died. So we then had a second battle and my orcs went forward and died. And then a third battle where my orcs stood still and died. This sounds like the history of my wargaming life, to be honest. <laughs> this is welcome to Warhammer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and so um yeah i think i then got some trolls and then my trolls stood around and did nothing and died and i, I kind of kind of got to the point where it was like you know i enjoy all of this and, and whatever but this is just not working for me yeah. um and and i kind of remembered that my mum had uh, she'd gone to a um a kind of a charity book thing that somebody had been doing in their house um, and I decided not to go along with her, which I think is probably a good idea because she came home with the Ethics Magazine Guide Number Four, Napoleonic Wargaming by Bruce Quarry, and she gave it to me, and I went, oh right, okay, and ignored it. And then I'm like, well, I don't want to do War on the Fancy Battle anymore because I can't win, and I, I, you know, and I'm not enjoying it, but I'm going to do something else. So I think. It was at that point we kind of, I kind of get a hold of David and said, right, 
let, let's try something a little bit different. Let, let, let's try this. Uh, and we were absolutely completely sad because what we did is, is as David said, is we cut card out in the footprint of the formations and then we wrote the names of all of the different units on there and you put the number of how many figures were on and then we put them on a on the table and and we had to go with these with these rules and uh, you know looking back on them that they're, they're, they're not a great set of rules but as far as i was concerned they were like 10 times better than Warhammer Battles. Yes. Yeah, because yeah. even though I was losing the game, it was at least competitive. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and I started started really kind of from, from there. And I looked at trying to get a 25mm army and a 15mm army. And, you know, I was 18 or 19 at the time, you know, in sixth form. We had no money. Um, and it was kind of like, well, where am I going to get all of the money needed to buy to buy the army? And then, and I don't remember where it came where it came from, what what we decided, how it happened. But it, it was dawning realization that actually six millimeter figures were affordable, and we could get quite a lot of six millimeter figures. And we could build units and we could play kind of large games. And so that's where I'm sure my first army was Heroics and Ross. And I'm sure I just about finished painting that when we discovered Adler. And at that point it was like, oh no, I'm going to have to move to Adler. <laughs> no, I just finished my first army. And, <laughs> and so yeah. Um, that 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 was kind of our our introduction to to wargaming, um, and over the two years that that I was at, at sixth form with with David, we we did quite a lot of um, innovative stuff. Uh, I, I remember particularly there was one fabulous game that that David ran that was that was really quite quite strange and unusual at the time, um, and it was kind of based on on aliens the the kind of the movie yeah. um, and he, he sat me down before it and he said, he said look he said, you're the only person that i can do this with he says because if i do it with anybody else he said it won't work i need you to sit at the other end of this hall and you are not going to get to see the table i'm going to relay messages to you from uh all of these guys as they're going through this battle and you are the, the lieutenant in charge, but you're not actually going to go into combat. And, you know, there were about seven or eight other players that were kind of in there meeting some tyrannid or alien hybrid thing. And um, it went predictably as badly um, for, the, uh, for the players <laughs> as it was in the Aliens movie. Yeah. And I've so, forgotten, forgotten about that game, but you just reminded me of it. That was a great game. It was it was a fantastic game. So I, I'm I'm over in the corner writing out my history homework, and David's coming over and going right. We've cleared the first room. Yeah, it's all fine. Followed by, uh, there seems to be something here, boss. Followed by, oh, we just lost somebody. Followed by, they spray acid. <laughs> followed by, yeah, and everybody launched other things, and I'm like, 
and I'm, I'm, I'm desperately passing these messages on. No, maintain, main, maintain control, men. Uh, no, you, your Imperial Marines or whatever. And it, it just kind of got got to the point uh, about you know more than halfway through where just all command and control was completely lost. Yeah. But it was uh, it was a fantastic thing, and it was just it was just a sign of, of the innovation. That we were starting to apply to, to kind of rule sets. Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of, kind of when, when this kind of started. And I think it was about the time that we both went off to university that, that we started writing war games rules. Right. So, so you're a bit of an author yourself as well then, Charles? Well, I, I think, I think we should be very clear here is that David is, um, it is kind of the, 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 um, driving force behind all of this. And I kind of fall in with him and kind of hold back on his exuberance. And I add in complexity. And Dave's, Dave's life is basically going, no, we're not having that complexity in. We're, we're keeping it simpler than that. And I'm, and I'm really kind of going, well, what about if we did this? And he's like, that's just not going to, going to do it. And, and so we, we did at the time, we, during university, we, uh, we wrote uh, a set of Napoleonic rules. I think David then did some American Civil War rules, and I'll let him talk about that. But we were constantly um, failing to find a set of rules that worked for us um, and kind of did the big battles that we kind of wanted to be able to do. And that was, that was a major source of frustration. And, you know, a lot of the modern rules kind of address those kind of concerns, but we didn't have access to, to all of that. And we didn't have the flexibility to buy 20 different rule sets and see which one we liked. Uh, so it was, it was basically, if we wanted to play the big game, we had to write the rules for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? The, um, how, how these things evolve and, and, and change and develop and how, how trends come and go within the hobby I think. Were you at the same university then you two or just in constant contact? That that's no. a sore point. No Charles Char, we we both applied to go to Lancaster um and I didn't get I didn't get a good enough grades. I thought I spent too much time in the library playing D and D. I went I went to Birmingham and uh, Charles went to Lancaster. Right, okay, okay. Because we are talking <laughs> pre-internet now, aren't we? Where, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and pre-mobile phones, so it's uh, the snail mail or um, <laughs> uh, a phone call uh, in the red phone box on the end of the road, I suppose. Yeah, I, I remember. I remember we had, was having like overlapping weeks where neither of us would be having to attend lectures, and and um, I actually went down to Lancaster and spent a week uh, with Charles and all his crazy wargaming friends. Playing games down at Lancaster University <laughs> sounds like hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you know that was another of the, of the games that David created. Uh, we, we, what was it? Mighty Empires, was it? That um, yeah, using the old games workshop sets. Yeah, um, and so we kind of played a couple of games of that and decided it wasn't very good. But you had all of these hex hex tiles. And you had uh, the little plastic models of ports and cities and armies. And so 
David just came up with his own set of rules again. Wow. A, a creative mind then, David. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, as a kid, I lived abroad for quite a long time as a little kid. My dad was an engineer. Um, and we spent, I don't know, I don't, I'm not, can't remember exactly how old I'd be, but certainly up until the age of about, uh, about 10, I'd say. I spent a lot of time on my own, you know, just playing in these crazy little worlds and pushing toy soldiers around and there wasn't, I didn't, there wasn't really any TV to watch, so that's how I entertained myself. So that's how I still am today. My wife would probably, you know, agree with that, you know. Um, I don't watch TV really, not very much. I tend to sit there reading and plotting and scheming and, and painting. <laughs> so, sounds like you're aiming for world dominance, David. I don't know about anything else. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think whenever I get people on a similar age to me, we all have that similar journey, don't we, through the hobby, whether it's since Games Workshop or D&D, and then that first exposure into what historical wargaming is and, and can be. And we are, we are limited, aren't we, as kids and, and teenagers. And when we go away to college, uh, with finances, I can, I can certainly remember being in my halls of residence and being very excited at ringing Essex miniatures up and ordering an American Civil War 15 mil army, which mm. would have been probably 20 quid back then, but it was a hell of a lot of money back then. 20 quid. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. Was, I thought I was really being decadent in, in ordering this, this army, which uh, came through and the, uh, the, uh, the superintendent of the halls at the time was very curious as to why I was getting a box of toy soldiers at my age. But, uh, <laughs> uh, that, that's something that's never stopped. Back, back um, in the day, it was embarrassing to admit you played, played with toy soldiers. Well, it, it's not the first line you use when you're trying to pick up girls in the, the student <laughs> union. <laughs> no, no. My wife, my wife still thinks it's very geeky and I've got to keep all my uh, wargaming accoutrement in the, uh, in the garage, where, which I've converted it into a gaming room. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very much the same. I've, uh, I've uh, commandeered the office in the house, and it, that's the only place that things are allowed. Everywhere else is a war game free zone. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're allowed one book. <laughs> <laughs> this all sounds so familiar. <laughs> We're all cut from the same cloth, aren't we, really? It's, it's amazing. We are. I'm... I'm, um, I'm Desperately waging a long-term campaign with my two boys, so that we can outvote out, out, out their mother. <laughs> uh, the, the problem is, is, is that she keeps pointing out that it, it doesn't really matter because she has fifty-one percent of the votes. Uh, so <laughs> you know, it, it, it's 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 not going well. No, no, you need to work on that. You need to work on a buyout, I think. <laughs> um, I, I, again, same experience. I've got a 10 year old daughter and I've, I've played one or two uh, board games and tabletop games with her, but increasingly it's becoming under sufferance. I think mm. initially it was quite exciting playing with toy soldiers and things, but increasingly under sufferance. And it's all about uh, Instagram and makeup now, I'm afraid. So, yeah, uh, I've, become, I've become a solo gamer again in the house. <laughs> I've got a 16-year-old daughter, and I used to play board games and war games with her, and she says to me now, you know, um, Dad, I only played them with you because I enjoyed spending time with you. I've got oh. no interest in the games whatsoever. <laughs> well, that's quite nice, though, isn't it? Yeah. That's quite a nice thing to say. <laughs> um, so, uh, 
David, uh, is World War Two always been sort of your principal area of interest, or have you just had that general sweep of history which has uh, uh, intrigued you? I think I've got probably about six or seven periods that I've always been into. Um, World War Two has always been one of them, but I, I guess like like many blokes, um, I suffer a bit from hobby ADHD. Um, I jump around, so you know. Napoleonic, American Civil War, World War Two, Cold War, sort of 1985, the balloon goes up stuff, um, fantasy and sci-fi. Those, those are my main periods. But you know, I, I sometimes look at you know some of the stuff you see on Facebook nowadays. You know, Daniel Hodgson stuff, and you look at it and you go, hmm, you know, a book about cartoons sounds interesting. And, yeah. And you slap yourself on the wrist and say, "Stop it! No, you can't do that." Yeah. <laughs> you've, you've obviously got great willpower because uh, I, I never get to the stage where I say, "Stop it!" <laughs> before I've uh, made an order. But there you go. Uh, and Charles, is it the same with yourself? You always had that sort of broad brush approach to the hobby. Uh, I tended uh, to be a lot more focused, so um, I started off with the Napoleonics, and it took me an absolute age before I gave American Civil War a go, and then I kind of forgot about the Napoleonics whilst I did American Civil War, and uh, it's probably less than 15 years uh, ago since I, I, I did World War Two for the first time, um, when I kind of got into spearheading in quite a big way, um, and you know, I'm I'm nowhere near as prolific a, a war gamer as, uh, as as David uh, has has been. Um, you know, with with kids kind of coming along and everything else. I, you know, I'm I'm coming back after probably about a ten year hiatus. Yeah. Um. So I, I kind of dabbled uh, a little bit in maybe one or two other things. Um. You know, I've done the odd bit of. Uh, ancients, but never really owned an army, um, and and so my 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 three periods are essentially World War Two, ACW, and, and Napoleonics. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 a, a lot more kind of focused, and I think uh, I I tended certainly in the last few years to kind of move more onto um, the kind of the modelling side of it rather than the the kind of the figure side of it. Yeah, and uh, hopefully, uh, a bit later on, we'll have a little chat about that because um, I think, as we talked about in the uh, pre ramble, uh, your Arnhem game that was it at Fiasco? Did you take it to Fiasco? or I, I did. One of the uh, Northern shows, wasn't it? Yeah, I've been to Fiasco. I think it was Recon in Pudsey. It went to York and uh, Hammerhead. And then, then obviously, um, the, the, the great dark. Curtain and cloud and storm and thunder uh, prevented it, but I was really looking forward to taking it to Joy of Six. Yeah, but yes, yeah. so yeah, yeah, that would that would have been great to see, absolutely. Um, okay, so we're here to talk about a new rule set called All Hell Let Loose, uh, of which you're the author, David. Um, and, and Charles, you've been involved in the, in the development and the playtesting, haven't you? So, uh, David, first of all, let's talk about the genesis of that set. You've clearly had an interest in, in writing and developing rules 
from your, your formative years and the hobby, but you've now got... Uh, is this the first published set of rules? Yes. So yeah. so you've, you've gone from that early formative dabbling uh, with rules to now having a, a published set of rules that's not just a PDF, but you've actually got hardback physical copies of, of this rule set. So what was the genesis of the idea for producing this set? I suppose I'm quite lucky in that I've got quite a large group of friends who, who wargame, some of whom I was at school with, like Charles, and plenty of others, like John Argyll, who, who he's more of a fantasy and sci- sci-fi guy, and I sit astride many of these groups. They all know each other and all play games with each other, but some of them have strong preferences. And some of them like fantasy, some like historicals, some like more complex, some like more grand strategic. And as a group, you technically vacillate between these different sets of rules. Um, you know, somebody will buy, say, Flames of War and turn up and everyone gets excited and buys armies and we start playing it. And then a year down the line, someone says, I'm fed up with this set of rules for X, Y, and Z reasons. Um, and then there'll be another person in the group who says, well, I, I want to play one-to-one scale World War II. And I want to play bolt action, and someone else will say, "Well, no, I, you know, like Charles has talked about spearhead, and you know that's that's grand strategic. You know, you can sort of play Kursk on a huge table with that." So the genesis of the rules really was about my frustration at the group not settling on a set of rules, and I thought rather than just write them on the back of a fag packet and try and develop them, you know, organically with the group. That won't work because there's, there's strong views on on what they what people are looking for. So I thought I need to design a set of rules by myself, but involving everyone else, particularly Charles. Charles has been the single biggest help with me with these rules. Um, my sounding board. Um, and the idea was to develop something that would try and please everyone. Another the saying goes, you can't please everyone all the time. But a set of rules that Roland Grimes, my good friend and modeler who likes to play sort of Normandy, 44, one-to-one scale in 6mm, highly detailed. Um, a game that would please him, but at the same time, a game that would please Charles. So something that looks and feels a bit like Spearhead. So that really was the genesis of the rules, to try and get over this scale problem that, that we as wargamers often wrestle with. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, that is an absolute uh, pertinent point there because we constantly worry if we see a new set of rules, are my figures based for that? Yeah. Is that the level that I can play at with this collection of figures or do I need to rebase or what's the organisation like? Have I got the right number of command elements or support elements that will uh, allow me to play these rules? And from my reading it, of, of the rules. This is really a sandbox, isn't it? Yeah. You can just jump in and you make it, you turn it into what you, what you want it to be. Yeah. The whole, the whole point of the rules really is that if somebody wants to play a company of troops per side, one to one scale on a four by four board, they can do. Or they can get a, you know, 15 foot by six foot table, um, throw the division down per side and get it done over a weekend with multiple 
players per side. Um, and the way I've tried to do that is by having some very simple core mechanisms, but having lots and lots of additional rules that you can choose to add in, dial yes. in the detail, or you can just ignore them if you want to go big. But then you'll get less granularity. And it's up to you. You can choose. Yeah, so from that initial sort of drive from yourself to please everybody or as many people as you can, certainly with your own in your own gaming group, can you remember when you first sat down and, and put pen to paper and thought, I've got I've got the germ of an idea here that might work? Yeah, I, it was about about three years ago we were playing a game of Bolt Action. Um which is, 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 is glorified 40k, isn't it, really? Yes, yeah. Um, but it's still got it. It's a good, a good simple set of rules. And I, and I remember sitting down and thinking to myself, well, I've just moved this squad of 10 German infantry up, up to this farmhouse. But if I was playing this in 6 mil, I would be moving 10 squads of German infantry into this built-up area. And that just fired a... I don't know, it just fired a spark in me and I thought, ooh, you know, people who like to play one-to-one, visualising this as, here are 10, 28 mil figures moving into a farmhouse, whereas other people could visualise exactly the same set of rules, but visualise it in a much grander scale. Yeah. I thought, rather than write down at the front of the rules, and it's interesting because lots of people on Facebook have asked me this, What's the ground scale? Is it one inch to 50 yards or one inch to 100 yards or one inch to 20 yards? And it's really important because lots of gamers, and I put myself in this box, are very visual. And we have a little camera rolling in our heads as we're playing games. Um, we're not quite making shooting noises as we're moving the fears forward, but... And speak but we, to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, we have this camera item um, and and you, as you shove your, your figures forward, you're visualising in your head what's going on. So that's what the rules were about. And, and the, the, the initial idea of the rules was to say, okay, this is a formation of up to 12 units, 12 things. And it, it doesn't really matter whether you're playing 1 to 1 or 1 to 10 or 1 to 20 because, you know, so much of World War II, the armies are actually quite similar in many respects. Um, you know, if you think of the triangular formation, you've got three squads to a platoon, three platoons to a company, three companies to a, a battalion. And I know it's not as simple as that. I know it's complex and, and there are lots of exceptions. But generally speaking, if I'm moving these three elements forward, I can be visualising them as being company attack, whereas I could be playing against Roland and he's moving his, his three elements forward and he's visualising it. You know, it was a, a platoon attack. Yeah. And my HMG stand represents all the HMGs at battalion level concentrated together into one group. Whereas in his head, his HMG stand represents the LMGs of the platoon opening fire. So th- that was, that was the, the germ, the initial thought process of how do I get over this problem of scale? And at, at some point, you you put pen to paper and because uh, this is going to be a generalisation now, but most war game rules have got 
a section on movements, a section on shooting, a section on fighting, and a section on morale, haven't they? As a general broad brush approach to what most players will look for in a game. So, uh, how, how do you shoot? How do you fight? What's morale like? How do I move my figures on the table? Do you remember when you first came up with the, the various little bits and pieces that brought all those bits together and you included in, in the set of rules? When, and when you first got that playable draft where you've actually got some models on the table and rolled some dice? Because I've written lots of other sets of rules before, I'm kind of familiar with the process. Yeah. Um, so what I did is I compartmentalised it. So for me, I always start with how does the command and control system work? How do you activate units? Yeah. Um, so I kind of think about that and scribble some notes down about that. And, you know, I set up a Word document and write down my ideas and, and go to the table and put figures on the table and, and bounce things around and think, does it work? Um, so I, at the beginning, I did that in a very rudimentary fashion for how would movement work, how would shooting work, how would morale work, and then just played some games, some solo games. And when I was happy with it, then I would invite a friend round, Charles would come round, or I'd go round to Roland's house, and we'd have a little kick about and say what they liked, what they didn't like. I'd listen to the feedback and start tweaking things. And very quickly, you know, certain ideas would just get completely thrown out of the window or Charles comes up with a, oh, that's a good idea, but why don't you, why don't you think about adding this in? Or, here's a good set of rules. They've got a mechanic that's similar to this. Why don't you try that? And, and it's kind of evolved over time. Um, and a constant backwards and forwards of, of me throwing ideas down, solo playing it, and taking it to friends, and, and different friends as well. You know, taking it to the fantasy people in my group. who were looking at, looking at it as a game rather than as a World War II game. Because um, it's important to get get those people's perspectives, because you want, you know, there's one guy in our group called Steve, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me mentioning, but he's he's got a real math head, and he's good at breaking systems. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted him involved, I really did, because although he was a pain in the bum, from my perspective as the games designer, he really helps me, because he challenges you, and he says, well, that's silly, if you're good... One of, one of the rules in my, in my game is you can have strategic markers where whole formations are represented by a counter. And the idea is, is you move your counters around and when they get too close to the enemy, they're, they're spotted and they flip and you have to deploy the miniatures. So it's a way of representing, you know, a fog of war. You don't know where stuff is. And because one of the ways to play the game is to have a, a bolt action style dice out the bag removal system, and we have dummy counters, Steve pointed out, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hide all my dummy counters at the back of the board to get more access and, and to prevent you from flipping them and revealing them. And that will give me the advantage of having lots of extra activation dice in my pool for the whole game. Now, that, that just never would have occurred to me. Yeah. Um, but by playing it with people like Steve, he spotted a really good hole in the rules. So now we say, once all your main formations have been revealed, you have to discard all your dummy counters. Lots of little things like that which helps. Yeah, it's. I've, I've never written a set of rules. I've been involved in, in playtesting for many years uh, at various points. But 
you do have to have that stress test, don't you? Because one, one set of rules is um, will be perceived differently by a whole whatever type of game you put it in front of. And most war games clubs have got these people in them, the the, the rules lawyers, if you like. You've got the the people who just like the spectacle of the figures on the table. You've got the people who just want to turn up and play with somebody else's toys and aren't really bothered about the rules or the realism. Or you might have people who really like the realism and want that simulation aspect as opposed to a game. So it must have been very useful to to have um, Steve there to, to sort of stress test it for you. Charles, can you remember when you were first exposed to David's ideas? I, I knew you were going to ask this question, so I'm afraid I, I did some prep. And the first copy of the rule that, that I can find uh, was from the 28th of January 2018. Uh, and so I, I got got a copy um, by email uh, and kind of kind of had a had a uh, a bit of a look. And you know, I have to say, I, I I didn't I didn't understand it when I when I first kind of kind of looked at it, and I and I wasn't wasn't very hopeful. I'd really enjoyed Spearhead. Um, and I think it was about a, probably about March, about six weeks later, I'd gone round for a game um, with with David and we, we tried tried out the rules and they were rough. They were they were um, embryonic. There were problems but I enjoyed myself so much um it was it was just kind of and it really was was one of the sparks really for me to kind of get back into into kind of wargaming after after quite a quite a long uh piece and it, it was it was just honestly it felt like um it felt like it was 20 years earlier when we just bat around rules backwards and forwards it was just our our standard evening of going oh what about this have you thought about that what what can we do here? So that that was kind of my my first exposure, and I, I I know there were certainly some 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 kind of issues and some things, and we were batting ideas backwards and forwards over email thereafter. The um, how how wide did you send out these rules then, David? Did you keep it close in with your just your wargaming buddies, or did you send it out wider? No, initially, I, I mean, there's, a, there's about, I don't know how many, there's about 15 of us probably in my extended wargaming group. Um, I mean, we're, we're, we're a scattered group around the Northwest. Lots of people live in Southport, live in Chorley, um, and around the Preston area. A couple live at Blackpool, Blackpool Way. Um, and we tend to, we're all, you know, we're all mature blokes with families, and most of us have gaming groups. So we're quite lucky. We, we go to each other's houses normally on a Friday night. Um, and we tend to sort of take it in turns to host, really. So, you know, whenever there was a, a gap in anyone's schedule, I would say, you know, do you want to come round? Do you want to have a go? Um, and initially, it was just me and Charles, and then we, then we got I got Roland involved, and and Bob Owens involved, and, and you know, sort of it, it, it went out in concentric rings, but just within those that group of about fifteen people. Um, because yeah, within within that group, there's there's a very wide range. You know, we're all blokes in our forties, fifties, some in the sixties. We're all veteran war gamers, so there's enough experience within the groups. I know if it works with within the group, 
I know it's going to work within the wider public. Yeah, it's um, it's invaluable, isn't it? That that playtesting uh, experience and as the author, and again, I haven't written rules, but how how tough was it for you to take that feedback when you? It's like I don't, when feedbacks come back and you thought you've got an you've got a golden idea or golden mechanism you think god this is really going to revolutionize <laughs> wargaming for the yeah. 21st century oh, my goodness, <laughs> this is brilliant and then charles comes in and says oh it's a bit rubbish that is dave <laughs> how, you how do you feel over that <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, how, how's your ego <laughs> <laughs> well I, i'm a i'm a psychologist by trade so Kind of this critical self-reflection stuff, you know, it, it, it's it's what what I'm meant to do anyway as a as a professional. But you I, practice I, what you preach. That's the thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I've got to be honest. There's the odd time when I've, I've been really wound up. Um, but I remember one game in particular. I went round to some friend's house in Southport, and one gentleman in the group, he's a good lad, but he, his feedback on the night was. Well, and I quote, these rules are shit, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm looking for, you see, Dave, <laughs> yeah. that honesty. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I was bloody furious, you know, because, you know, I probably put more work into these, I definitely put more work into these, and I've done into my master's thesis, you know, it's it, it's bloody hard work writing these rules. Um, it's, it's relatively easy to come up with ideas, and, and to do some basic play testing, but to move from there to a finished product, gosh, yeah, it, it, it's hard work. It really is. Let, let me guess. That guy was on the losing side and had a bad dice <laughs> roll. I'm, I'm just guessing. I don't know. Do you, you, you know what? You're right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny how our, our opinion gets clouded, doesn't it, by a bad dice roll? <laughs> I have to say, Sean, that, that David was absolutely brilliant through through that process because. Um, the, 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 the kind of the editing, the rewriting, the changing, the morphing of the rules from, from that initial very rough outline in, in word into a final piece, it, it is, is just a constant stream of, oh, this needs changing. You need to reword that. You need to, to, to kind of, kind of do this and we need to do that. And, Actually, you know, they, they got to a point. I think I think we've rewritten the rules from scratch. We didn't. Some of the mechanisms have have kind of stayed uh, broadly um, similar all the way through. But we, we we kind of went through it. And again, I, I, I checked. We, we've got. I've got twenty four versions of the rules uh, in my um, uh, on my computer, and I know I don't have every one. Uh, and I, and I know there was probably about another 10 over the last year that I, I haven't, haven't, uh, seen that are kind of going through the proofing. But several times during that, we rewrote the rules from scratch because the, the wording had to be done differently. The layout had to be different. The, the whole piece. And it's, and it, it it's, it is really, it's got to be on, on kind of both sides. We've got to be kind of providing that kind of feedback that says, no, that doesn't work. But what we've also got to be kind of doing, in particular from my point of view, is, hey, Dave, here's an idea. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. And Dave sends me a new set of rules. None of my ideas are in it. 
and <laughs> and it's kind of like it's you know this this is David's rule set, and yeah. you know if he doesn't like it, it, it it's not it's not going going in it. But yeah. David's really good, particularly one time when I said, look. Your language is all over the place. You're very woolly. You, 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 you're, you're using inconsistent language. Um, the, the order of all of the stuff in this is nothing. I said, I'm just going to rewrite it for you. And he went, okay. And I wrote it completely. And, you know, front to end. And he went, oh, okay, that's 43,000 words or something ridiculous like that. I'm going to rewrite it for you. <laughs> Gosh. And so there's, there's, there's that, that, um, kind of, kind of, of, that's the dynamic. If you don't have that kind of dynamic, then, then your rules are, are, are going to have flaws in it because somebody got wedded to something or somebody thought about something or, um, somebody kind of dropped out of the process. Because they couldn't handle um, um, the information and the feedback and the changes um, that kind of come through, and and it is, it is when you're doing this, it, it's just relentless. Um, and I think it was listening to um, the gentleman from the Two Fat Lardies was saying that the more you read the document, the less you see, yeah. and and so. You know, you go through and you read the War Games rule set from cover to cover. You go through, you make 103 comments or whatever it is that, that's on it and, and suggestions and changes. And, you know, you put hours into kind of doing that and then it goes in and a week later you get a revised version and you are starting from scratch. Yes. Because you have to go line by line through because it wasn't just you providing feedback. So you can't assume that paragraph five that you thought was fine is fine because somebody else might have put a word in it, and and there's there's this this kind of kind of piece, and, and so it the, there's this constant change with with all of this that's kind of going on, where you really have to kind of dig deep within yourself to kind of go yes this is worth kind of doing, and and let's keep going and when stuff that you're not happy with continues to stay in the rules. It's like, well, okay, not my rule set. And, and you know, Dave's probably kind of going, yeah, I had this really great mechanism, but nobody liked it, so I, I had to take it out. And 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 that that's, that's just the process of, of kind of going through and doing that design. Yeah. As you've alluded to there, from first draft to production copy, I guess there's many changes in there, David. What would you say is the one mechanism that went through the most revolutionary change from your first idea, where you scribbled an idea down onto your, your computer, to what's been produced in the in the final copy? The, uh, the two things that I think are quite different about these rules compared to anything else I've played, and I don't I don't claim to have played all sets of World War Two rules by any means, but I haven't come across them anyway. It's the way that rallying works. So the way rallying works in this game is when units acquire disorder, they can't acquire too many, otherwise they're destroyed. So that that helps people be realistic in that they want to rally their troops, not just throw, throw everything forward into 
a mad banzai charge. But the, the, un, the unique mechanism there is that when you rally your troops, you can swap out troops in the front line who are disordered with, with supporting units in the back line who aren't. So that encourages players to move away from the sort of Napoleonic firing line of, right, I've got an infantry, com- infantry battalion here. I'm going to put all three companies up in the shot window to try and maximise the number of dice I'm rolling on the attack. That's not what they did, is it? They would, you know, 1944 British Infantry Battalion, they'd probably stick two companies up and they'd have a company in reserve. Yeah. So the, the rules are encouraging players, without railroading them, um, they're encouraging players to manoeuvre their formations in a more historical manner. Um, and that that's one mechanism I'm quite proud of. And I'll admit there are a couple of players in my extended group who don't get it. They just don't get it. Why are these men jumping around when it's not their, not their turn? Yeah. Um, but it, it's that level of abstraction that you, you've got to, I think, get your head around when you're playing six mil World War Two. You know, these men are falling back with their wounded, and and, and these other men are, are bringing up fresh troops and ammunition forward. That's why you've got a reserve. But that'll be the, that'll be the first rule. And the second rule, and I think it was, I can't remember now, I think it was Charles that came up with this. And the power of artillery kept moving backwards and forwards. We played games where we thought it's too powerful, and we played games where it wasn't powerful enough and it was impossible to winkle out sort of infantry out of, out of, out of ruins. And, and we constantly were twiddling and, and messing about with these rules, trying to get the balance right on artillery, because artillery is obviously a big part of a, a World War II game. Yeah. And the idea that we came up with is that artillery doesn't roll to destroy when it's firing indirect. Uh, all it does is cause, it rolls, it rolls extra dice, but it needs high numbers, but it causes lots of disorder. And the idea behind that is that infantry that sits in cover, refusing to move, once the enemy artillery is coming down on it, if it just sits there refusing to move, it will it will be degraded. It will slowly degrade over time until the point where it just melts away and it's gone. Um, and that's what artillery was used for. It was used to degrade enemy units over time, or, or it would be used as a, a quick strike to try and stun the opposition to enable you to assault them, to keep, you know, to keep their heads down. Um, so that would be the other mechanism. So what you, it's not a game where you can just roll out the 155mm howitzers and blow the enemy off the table. You can't do it. You need combined arms. You need to be pinning them with artillery um, and then assaulting them with your, your infantry and your armour. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're saying if I line up 20 T-34 tanks wheel-to-wheel and march them across the table, I'm not going to do very well. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> I mean, on that, there's, there's another, yet another optional rule in the rules. Um, it's called the Concentrated Targets Rule, whereby if you're playing the six mil figures, if those tanks are within, within an inch of each other, you get plus one to be hit. Right, that's interesting. So it's, so you're encouraging that spacing out. Yeah, again, I'm not railroading people, but I'm encouraging them. Yes, yeah, and there's a difference, isn't there? Yeah. That if you, you, you are rewarding historical tactics and if somebody chooses not to use historical tactics well they'll they'll likely suffer i guess yeah i mean i, I don't I, I don't 
you know, I've read lots of books about World War Two, but I don't want to try and make this a snobby, elitist, you know, pipe-sucking set of rules where you can only you can only play it if you've read ten books, or, you know, twenty books on World War Two. I'd like you know a young kid who's played forty k to be able to play these rules as is, um, to get into history, to get into the hobby in the same way I'd like someone our age to buy this set of rules and go. Oh right, yeah, they, they have something to offer. They do reflect history. Uh, I think throughout wargaming and, and and history itself, there's certain tenets that re- are rewarded. Where if having a mobile reserve, for instance, if you throw everything that you've got into your first attack, then you might you might well come out on the losing end and find you've got nothing left to plug. Uh, yeah. The gap, and that would be true in Napoleonics, in American Civil War, in in uh, Cold War or Ancients. Those those are certain tenets, aren't they? That I think gamers, well, I was going to say learn to use. I'm not sure I've ever learned to use that because I'm a general uh, charge <laughs> and see what happens <laughs> at the end of it, man. But um, that if you can follow some of those, you know, the Sun Tzu uh, type. Uh, art of war ideas, then uh, any set of rules should reward that if if uh, you follow it correctly. Um, yeah. And I, I think I am no World War II aficionado. Um, to paraphrase General Grant from the Civil War, or misparaphrasing, uh, I only know two tanks. One is a Sherman and the other isn't. Um, so I, I, I can't really go into the nuts and bolts of that, but I certainly know that if a tiger is attacked from the front by Sherman, then you're going to be in trouble. But if you can get around the flank, then you might stand a chance. And the rules include that sort of detail, don't they? Where your yes. positioning of your vehicles, the positioning of your men, uh, can be used to your advantage to to try and uh, win the day. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, vehicles have different defence values and certain weapons have different penetration values. So, you know, some, if a Sherman's shooting against the Tiger, it's really going to struggle. It's going to, you know, be bouncing most of the time. But you get enough Shermans, or you get a load of infantry at close quarters, and they can destroy that Tiger. But destroy doesn't necessarily mean they fired a shell and it's gone through, you know, the front glasses plate. That might mean that they've come around the side and knocked a track off and the crew run away. Or it might mean that they force the tiger to withdraw. Yeah. The tiger's worried about, oh, we've been spotted. How long have we got before the Yarbos arrive and blow us up, you know, from the, from the sky? Okay, so give us a bit of a elevator pitch then on, on the flow of the rules. So if somebody orders this from you after listening to this podcast, which I'm sure there will be in the thousands, um, from when they, they receive that book and, and start reading through, just talk us through that sort of the flow of the rules from the the sequence of events in, in the game, if you like the moves. Yeah. Okay. So you've gone on War Games Vault. You've ordered your rule. Um, so you can either get a PDF or you can get a physical copy, a softback or a hardback or some bundle thereof. When you look at the rules, the first thing to think of is there are lots and lots of optional rules. So you probably want to play the first through, through the first few games without those optional rules, just to get your head around the turn sequence, and then slowly add in the extra rules, the ones you like, the ones you want to play. 
So there's different ways to play, but the, the way most games are played is a bit like bolt action. So you say I had a, a force of three infantry formations, an, an off-table artillery formation, and a small recce formation of armored cars. I would I would then have five dice that would go in a bag. And say I was playing against an opponent who had five German dice. You draw the dice out of the bag, and it's one of your dice, and you say, okay, I'm going to try and activate one of these formations. So you, you say which formation you're trying to activate, and you roll the dice. If you roll a poor activation, all that formation can do, all the little men in that formation can do, is they can either make a half move, or they can fire it up to half range. So essentially, they can they can manoeuvre cautiously, or they can shoot at any enemy who are on top of them, but nothing else. If you get a, a regular activation result, all the men in the, that formation can do one, take one action. So they can move, they can shoot, they can assault, uh, they can rally, or certain types of troops can do things like you know, go into ambush, go take engineering actions, and so on. If you roll really well, normally a six, then you get a double activation, so you get two actions. So you could you could move twice, you could fire a plus one to hit. That's called a sustained fire action. Um, you could you could do combinations of things. So you could move then rally, or you could rally then fire. And, and the order in which you do it is completely up to you, and that's where the skill of the the player comes in. Because if you had a mixed typical mixed formation, you might have a mortar. You'd say, right, I'm going to activate that first and fire smoke. Then I'm going to open up with my heavy machine gun stand. Then I'm going to assault with my infantry. And I'm going to put my uh, pack 40 into ambush so that when the British counterattack inevitably in their turn, I can interrupt their movement and take a pot shot at them. So that, that's how that's how units move and I activate. Um, and the quality of the troop type, the quality of the formation rather, that determines how how well, how easy it is for them to activate. So poorly led troops, if they roll a 1 or a 2 on a D6, they get a poor activation. Particularly well led troops, if they roll a 5 or a 6, they can, they can get that double order. So you can have games, and me and Charles have played games, where you could have, say, an early war Eastern Front game where you're, the Germans are at number 3 to 1, 4 to 1, and um, more, and still win. So there's there's interesting ways you can play around with that. The actual movement and shooting is pretty much like most other World War II war games. So, you know, all the things are in there that you'd expect. Certain terrains will slow you down. Certain types of terrain will block lines of sight. Um, shooting is you roll to hit and then you roll to destroy. Indirect fire doesn't roll to destroy. You just roll to hit, but you might get multiple dice. So you can try and accumulate um disorder on units before they're actually destroyed. And then morale, the way morale is reflected in the game is when you roll to activate your formation, if your formation is below half strength, at or below half strength, you get penalties. And um, I'm trying to think, probably a bit like Fire and Fury, if you roll a low number and your penalties reduce your activation roll to below one, you men start to run away. Yeah. Um, so if you get a bad roll, but only just fluff it, fail it a little bit, they'll run away 3d6 inches. If you make a really bad roll, they'll run away 6d6 inches. Um, and then once, once they're running, um, you have to roll against to try and see if you can activate them again in the next turn. And that's it really, that's, that's the game in a nutshell. 
Um, but there's lots of subtleties. You look at the rules, and the rules are, you know, it's not the thickest of books, but that was, again, that was quite deliberate. Um, you know, something, what, 56 pages long? I don't want, I'm, I'm past the, the stage where I want to buy a set of rules that's 200 pages long, because my heart sinks. I don't want to <laughs> spend three hours trying to learn it. I want something yeah. I can read in an evening, and then, you know, get the figures out, and have a, try and have a kick around, and, and the complexity comes out in the way that you play it. I think I may have mentioned this on the Facebook group, actually, and I was probably one of the people who said, what's the ground scale? I need to know the ground <laughs> scale. Um, but you, you hit on a, a great point there, because I, I read through the rules in, I don't know, about half an hour or something, uh, of, of the, the main rules and mechanisms, and it made me want to go upstairs and cut out some cardboard counters a bit like you and Charles did back in the day <laughs> and start pushing things around because I felt like I'd get to grips with the, these, mechani- these uh, mechanics. And when I say the mechanics are simple, they aren't simplistic, they're simple, then that's, that's how it strikes me. It makes me want to get things on the table and then learn the game as you play because you don't learn a set of rules by reading them, do you? You learn them by no. playing them. Yeah. And you, you get into the nuts and bolts and the uh, all the nuances of a set of rules by playing them. But it really drew me in to want to do that because I'll be honest, Charles, and I know, I know you said you played Spearhead a lot back in the day. When I read Spearhead, that it didn't give me that same pull to think, oh, oh I can get something out on the table pretty much straight away and play it. I, I agree, and I think um, kind of when we were kind of thinking of, of kind of how do we promote it, the thing I'd say is, is is there are only three mechanisms that you need to learn. It's how to activate a formation, it's how to fire, and it's how to do combat. And and what we've managed to do is is put uh, a lot of uh, nuance into um, those elements. And the thing that always really annoyed me about Spearhead was the fact that you know, I had to I had to have a map of my table created. It had to be reasonably accurate because we were drawing arrow markers and and so on. And and your your kind of plan was was kind of based off that, as as was your your opponent's. And what we absolutely didn't want was for people to have to sit down and go, let's draw up a map of this game and and kind of play it. And and so that's where the um, the, the kind of the activation um, and the, the the movement mechanisms really kind of uh, allow you to to adapt to kind of what 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 you've got on the table and what happens. The 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 randomness in in the way that the the dice come out kind of allow for a a, a flow and counterflow of of the battle. And it and essentially allows your your game to, to kind of flow organically. And those armies that were capable of adapting plans or keeping to a plan will will fly around the table. And those armies that that can't sit on the table and and their generals just sit there bemoaning the fact that that an isolated unit is being taken apart because they can't they can't react to it. And so it's really about trying to change um, the approach to the game, but achieve the kind of the same result. And and through kind of abstractions and through 
uh, little elements um, within kind of how those those rules kind of go. So one of the the key things is really around that that activation and movement. That it at some point in the game, you as a general are going to be stood there looking at your table, and there are three units or three formations you are going to want to move. You, you, you're kind of thinking, I've got to stop him over there, I've got to take this, and I have to attack over there. And you are presented with that dice comes out of the bag, and it's kind of, which one of the three do I do? And the player is actually spending quite a lot of time thinking about what their plan is, and how they're going to adapt it, and what's going to happen, and how do they recover from that, rather than, oh, and I'm just moving this forward. Um, you know, there's, there's a chance that it won't come off when you actually roll that activation dice. But actually, as a general in this game, you do have to put quite a bit of thought into, and um, how, how is this attack going to unfold? Because you can't, you can't control, um, exactly the order in which the dice can come out. You can just choose when it's your turn and your dice comes out, which unit you move next. Um, and, and it's it, it's what, what what I referred to. I think once at one point you say, you know, in a game of chess, you know exactly what your opponent can do, you know exactly how they can do it, and you know exactly in what order they can do it. But war's not like that. So we the, the mechanism that Dave kind of came up with breaks all of that um, because you don't know what order um, somebody's going to be able to go in. Because you can get the different activation results, you don't know whether they're going to have a dreadful turn or they're going to have a great turn. And consequently, you can't guarantee what they're going to be able to do. Um, and, and so it, it's much it's much more um, realistic uh, kind of a, a, of a way of abstracting that that fog of war, that fear. Um, you know, you can't can't just go, all oh, right. Well, I've got one one formation, and he's got one formation. They'll just even each other out. I don't need to worry about that flank. You just can't do that. You know, you get some bad dice rolls. They get some good dice rolls. That that flank can 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 end up falling apart, and, and so that's very much the 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 light in in the game is is that you have to be able to 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 be that that general that person in charge and deal with those setbacks and and accommodate the variables in your in your kind of planning. So whilst it looks like it's a remarkably simple system. It really does challenge the person that's on the table to to actually really think about how how that game is is going to go and what what those possibilities are. And this is a point that I'm I'm really keen on making in that for me a good set of war games rules doesn't get in the way of the player being the taking on that role of the general the commanding officer. And making those command decisions. You don't want to be worrying about a mechanic or kind of remember this mechanic or have I got all these modifiers in. You want to be saying, I want this company to take that, that 
pillage. And how can I how can I achieve that? Don't you? you don't want the mechanics getting in the way. It's like a a good football game. You don't notice the referee. He he runs the game and he he interprets the laws of the game or supposed to. But a good a good referee is invisible, and you want the rules almost to be that, don't you? You want the rules to not get in the way of the player making those decisions that are put in front of them. Absolutely, and I, I think one of the things we did late on uh, was we we went through all of the various modifiers that we put on on all of this, and and David just went and put a line through about half of them because it was, do we really need that? Yeah, you know, let's not have a table of fire modifiers that's twenty that's twenty lines long. You know, it's let's really dial it down into to what is uh, kind of essential. And, you know, players can add more in. Uh, you know, it's very straightforward. The, the mechanisms, you know, people will see that. And it's kind of a, as David said, it's kind of the, 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 the sandbox element of this is, you know, you really want to start putting in modifiers for hedges or walls or whatever. That's fine. You know, you can see kind of how to do that. But Let's keep it as as simple and straightforward as possible, um, while still maintaining uh, a credible war game. Yes, you, you want that sort of credible result, don't you? you? Want you want the outcome to be realistically possible, I guess. Um, Dave, David, when did you know that you put the last full stop to these rules and were ready to go to? publishing or were you nervous at that point to think or I'm not quite sure I guess the last time was when I I took them to one of my friends who I still play D&D with online because of lockdown uh, called Matthew Pennington he's um, he runs his own LARP business and he he's he's really good at desktop publishing because he does all his own stuff and over lockdown he was able to um Help me go through it all line by line. He's 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 a, he's a role player, not a war gamer. Although yeah. he has war games when he was a kid, um, and it really it was it was me taking the very best finals draft that I I could make with the help of all my friends, who all looked at it and thrown their two pennies in, and taking it to Matt, and then him going through it, and him just spotting just the odd thing here and there, spotting something, going. When you say this, is this what you mean? And then him asking that question lets me know that I need to go back and simplify or re-explain and so on. So when I've got a set of rules that all my extended group are happy with, and I've got a set of rules that another friend but who's not a war gamer is happy with, I figure that's that that's as good as they get. Um, but yeah, it's still nerve-wracking to, to sort of it's like letting your little baby out into the world. Yes. Yeah, I can't can't begin to imagine because um, there must have been a nervousness when you got the final printed hardback or softback copy into your hands and you thought, well, it's now committed. I can't change anything in this now. There's been a print run of these. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest with you, there's... You've probably seen it in the Facebook group now. We've got we've got over over a hundred people in the Facebook group, which is great. Yeah. Um, 
and it's doing really well on War Games Vault. But, but there has been one, one, it's not an errata, it's an omission. Me and, me and everybody else and Charles, we just missed it. Yeah. And that's the rule that when infantry mount and dismount from vehicles, when guns limber and unlimber, um, they, they pay a 50% move, movement penalty. Right. And it's just, it's just not in the rules. Yeah. But touch wood, that's the only thing that anyone's come back and said, where's the rule for this, or this doesn't read right, or, or whatever. It, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, with these things, because when I've been involved in playtesting and, and reading through rules, um, and the, the rules author is, is sending out the various copies, and you think, yep, yeah, that's ready to go. And then you get the published copy in your hands. You think, bloody hell! Missed <laughs> one. One notable example was there's an entire section missed out. One, a quite a core mechanic within a set of rules. The the entire explanation of how that mechanic worked was missing, and yet nobody uh, out of dozens of playtesters and the author himself had picked up on it. It's because you can't see the wood for the trees, can you, when you're that close? Yeah, like Charles said, when you when you when you've been so close to it for so long. You have to have other eyes on it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so within the uh, rule book itself, there's quite a lot of um, data regarding uh, armies at the back. Um, principally for late war, I think. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, what are the plans for satisfying those people who want to go into the desert or do Dunkirk? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the decision to just put in all the late war stuff really was a selfish one in that that's the main period that myself, Charles, Roland and the others who were into World War II were into. Um, but yes, if the rules do well, you know, if I, if I manage to sell more than a couple of hundred sets, um, then yes, um, I can see us moving on and doing some early, early war stuff and doing some in maybe Tunisia or North Africa, you know, stuff as well. Um but it, it will be dependent on sales. If I only sell a couple of hundred, then, you know, I don't know if it's worth doing unless we were going to do it anyway for ourselves. Yeah. We'll see. But, yeah, if, if, if the community at large likes it and the feedback is positive, which it has been so far, um, yeah, watch this space. There'll be more coming. Excellent. Excellent. So I think there's, there is some uh, bits and pieces out there already. I think, Charles, you've made a few scenarios available haven't you and um there's has there been some early work on some uh, on another theater was there some early work on on france 1940 that, that's right so within the facebook group um i um dropped several of the scenarios that we we used and came up with during play testing so those are kind of freely available for um for, for members to kind of look at and and, and kind of see um exactly what we were kind of thinking and also the kind of the variance that we put in um for each scenario so rather than just fighting it um straight off of what's in the rules the there are elements that we kind of put in there that show uh how how you can just vary little bits here and there and that that can um can can just change the way that the game flows slightly uh i have also uh, dropped some early information on early war French, I think, and early war German. Uh, I think we've got some stuff on early war Russians that I need to, 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 to do and, uh, early war British. And again, those are just really kind of in, in, in draft. But what we'd 
we'd hope is, and, and part of the reason for, for kind of not doing the extensive list is that, you know, there are just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of um, different vehicles and, and so on during used during the war. What we kind of hope is is that people can kind of look at um, the things we've done late war and interpret that and come up with their own um, kind of numbers for earlier in the period that they're much more familiar with and are much happier with than than, than any numbers that we could we could kind of in, impose. So it, it's not really um, a, a massively complex system and people that are kind of looking at it will be able to see um, that there are generic kind of rules that begin, you know, there is no armoured vehicle that has a defence of less than five, there is no armoured vehicle that has a defence greater than 12, and so you're kind of looking at where does it kind of go on on that kind of scale. Infantry, we, we just talk about in, in kind of generic terms, but there, again, it's it's the mechanisms that are available within the rules that, that kind of uh, are able to distinguish the performance between the, the various nations and, 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 and at the various different times. Um, you know, just saying that Russian infantry is, is this good, it, it, it's not true. It, it varied massively across the war. Um, and again, a lot of that is not really about the fighting prowess of the men that, that were actually there. A lot of it is around command and control. So there are uh, a lot of thought kind of really needs to go into uh, adapting the command and control uh, mechanisms. And again, we, we I'm posting um, kind of ideas and suggestions and options. And we're going to kind of do that over over the next few months uh, there within the Facebook group, but also uh, on our website where we, we just t- kind of talk about uh, how you can get uh, as much as possible out of out of this sandbox set of rules. Yeah, the, I think that's the the point that people can make this what they want. And we, I started the conversation by saying this is a sandbox. So whether you want to play platoon, company, divisional games, then um, it's it's a people who know their onions about World War Two will fairly easily be able to adapt it, won't they? Into Whatever set of rules uh, it is that they want, I think for me, uh, David, and uh, you know, I'm hugely impressed by this product. I've got to say, um, the the mechanism that really stood out to me um, as as different to things I've seen before, because we've seen the dice being pulled out of the di- the bag before, but this activation roll, I think, really is that for me is that core mechanic. Which represents that uh, command and c- control difficulty, which can mitigate, but it can really throw a spanner in the works, or it can really give you that bonus, can't it? And I think this is my opportunity now to to press home the advantage. Yes, I mean it, it sounds and it is really really simple, but it, it comes back to what you were saying before about you're thinking about your plan, you're not thinking about what numbers you need. Exactly. You're just hoping that you get a good dice roll, then you get to do what you want your figures to do. Yeah. And, you know, you're not sitting there with little columns of red numbers that are interfering with your little camera roll that's going on in your head as you're shoving your figures forward making firing noises. <laughs> yeah, be, because you don't want to, um, uh, you don't want to switch off that immersion, do you? You want to be immersed in 
in the game and the role that you're playing as the commander. You don't want to have to step outside of that immersion to flick through the rule book. And it, you know, it's a, it's a simple chart, isn't it? That um, uh, just is it, so simple. It's brilliant to me. It's it just Thanks. it 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 it's, uh, it does what it needs to do. And, and coming back to the tweakability of the rules, I mean, you look at the sort of the, the very first table. It's, this is the number you need to get to get a partial, single, or double activation. Yeah. But there's another rule that says, well, if you consider this, say you were playing early war German and you wanted to represent, well, the Germans are really well led and highly motivated at this point in the war. You can make them well, well, well led, which means you roll two dice and pick the best one. Yes. So statistically, me and Charles have sat down and done the math. We've worked out, you know, well, perhaps these Russians that are trapped in this pocket, they might be very brave men, but they've got no ammo, no fuel, and they know they've had it. So they're, they're classed as poorly led. So they roll two dice and they pick the worst results. And by just tweaking one thing like that, you can change the sorts of games you're playing very, very quickly. I have to say it's my one bone of contention because the only six mil World War Two force I own is an early war Russian force, and I'm scared to put them on the table. <laughs> I don't need any handicaps <laughs> to prevent me winning the game. But no, that, that is it, it is such. Sorry, yeah, exactly. Well, um, that's what I'm talking about when it, it's such a simple idea to get across uh, a really high-level concept, really, uh, of, of what you're representing on the table. So uh, I thoroughly, thoroughly applaud you for it. So where can people get their cold hands on this hot product? Uh, it's number one bestseller on Wargames Vault. Wow. I think that's a first for the podcast. <laughs> number one in the hit chart. Number one in the hit chart, yeah. I think it, I think it's just about beating um, the latest version of Harpoon at the moment. Right, well, there you go. There's, there's something to write on your gravestone. Yeah. Happy, happy to have that. <laughs> so, uh, War Games Vault's the place to go. Yeah, excellent. You can um, either download it as a PDF, yep. or you can get it as a softback book or a hardback book, or you can do a bundle and get them all. Excellent, excellent. I highly recommend uh, any listener out there into World War II, go out there and get this, because I can't wait. Uh, I last played a face-to-face war game in, well, before first lockdown, so I'm absolutely itching to get out there and uh, and, and play some face-to-face gaming. And mm. I do have my early, war, early World War II Russians, uh, and my friend Aid has got the, um, the Germans to go against them, so this will be... The first game, well actually we are talking about converting to 1944, so uh, mm. we'll be using uh, the, the rules as written in the book, but we'll be looking at doing some conversions uh, for some of that earlier earlier conflict. Uh, gentlemen, that's, thanks very much for that run through of um, how these rules have come into being, and you must both be very proud of uh, seeing it out there in the wild. Yeah, thanks. Great. I, you know, I've, I've managed to get my um, a couple of my models and, and take this uh, game to to war game shows, um, and you know I've run uh, fairly simplistic games of of all hell let loose, um, 
actually at the shows, and, and I, I think I've, I've run probably about 30 or 40 uh, games um, using kind of these rules. And actually, it is that the, the best moments have just been uh, kind of watching people really switch on to the, the way that the game works. And, you know, after I've run something like the ninth game in a day, you know, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. Okay. And have, having some, some nine year old point out that I've forgotten to do something is just marvelous because it's kind of, it, it really was, it was kind of, kind of doing this and goes, well, don't you have to do that first? And it's like, brilliant. <laughs> You've only been playing this game 20 minutes and yet you, oh, you, got it. you now understand how it works. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the games I've, I've done have been incredibly well received. I, um, I, I don't think anybody's walked away unhappy and, 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 and kind of gone away. And the game I, I, I run is, is designed for, for me as, as the German player to lose. Um, and it's, it's designed every time for that to kind of happen. But actually on, on, on two occasions, I've won. Um, and, but even the people that were, were, were kind of, um, on the losing side on, on that still really enjoyed themselves. Uh, and so that, that to me is, is really, um, quite, quite encouraging. It is fantastic feedback for, for the product that David's written. Um, that, that people can pick this up so easily and get so much enjoyment out of what was essentially, uh, an incredibly basic uh, game, and you know, it really was just, just as basic as I could make it, because we wanted it to be to be over and done with in about 25, uh, 30 minutes, uh, and so that that's kind of where where I I got a lot of that that feedback and enjoyment, that rosy glow, was kind of seeing people pick this up, understand it, and just run with it. Yes, yeah, and. Uh, the, the, there's no greater testament is there than um, a nine-year-old or you know, children being involved in these games and getting immersed into historical gaming uh, with a system that lets them get involved in it very quickly, where they pick up the mechanisms very quickly, but perhaps learn a little bit of something about the history as well. So, um, well, well done to you both, absolutely. Um, gentlemen, I know you've both listen to the odd episode of the podcast before so you know what will be coming next uh, as we look to round out the show I've, I've got two requests uh, from you both um, the first is that you uh, pledge to return to the podcast at some point in the future uh, I hope it's not been too taxing for either of you uh, and that you'll agree to do that Dave will you be back? Yes thanks that'd be great I'd love that Good. Charles? I would be absolutely delighted to come back. Fabulous. And the second one is I'll be looking for a deposit into the God's Own Scale virtual library, which is filling up now. And I have actually said that I should collate these books somewhere because um, there's been some great recommendations over the last uh, 25 podcasts. And I'm sure there's going to be a couple of extra coming up from you both now so I, I, I do pledge to listeners 
but I will collate all of the uh, entries and I'm not quite sure where, where I'll put it yet, but uh, I'll, I'll do that. David, David, first to you, have you got something or uh, one or two books that you'd like to put on the shelves? I have. I've chosen a World War II book for obvious reasons. The best book on World War II I've ever read um, is called The Noise of Battle by Tony Colvin. Um, and that's about the British Army and the last big set-piece battle um, before they crossed the Rhine, uh, right. February, March 1945. And it, it, the reason why it's so good is because it's really... The guy who wrote it, I don't think he's a war gamer, but he's written it almost as if he was a war gamer. Right. Because it goes into such detail about these battles that went on. Um, and there's loads and loads of first-hand accounts that really bring it to life. And so the battles, they're, they're all manageable. Some of them I've played as all hell let loose scenarios. Um, there's, the Scots Guards are there. Um, they're fighting Falsham Jaeger. There's Guards Armoured Brigade there. There's Crocodile Flamethrower tanks. Uh, there's 88s. It, it was all hell let loose. It was a, a really big set-piece battle, and it it also goes into quite some detail about the controversial um, claim that some people say about whether the British Army suffered at the end of the war by failing to integrate the infantry and the armour uh, properly enough in all units. And he goes into in that into some detail as well. Um, so it's a really interesting book, but also it's good for a war gamer. Excellent. You don't often find that, do you? But uh, that that'll uh, take its uh, place alongside all of the other books on there, The Noise of Battle by Tony Colvin. Yes. Thank you very much for that. Charles, have you got something for me? Uh, I do indeed, um, but I'm going to book the trend here. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing World War II, even though we're here to talk about that. <laughs> um, the, the book that got me into historical wargaming, um, it was David Chandler's Campaigns of Napoleon. And I read that book, and it is, even for somebody that was, um, you know, not really uh, familiar with the the period and and everything else, it was was an easy read. It's a huge book, but it goes into all of the the, the battles that Napoleon fights all the way through his career and, and talks about extensively in the Napoleonic Wars. And it's, it, it's just fantastic. Everybody should should read the campaigns of Napoleon. Yeah, that, that that's one that's on my shelves. I, I'd echo that. Um, it's it's a fabulous book. It's a hefty book, isn't it? It's, it's not an easy nighttime read while you're lying in bed. <laughs> no, no, it, 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 it's not. It's it's heavy and it can it can look off putting, but actually it's remarkably readable. Uh, and it just fires everything when I read that book. Yeah, brilliant. That that uh, will also uh, sit on the shelves of the God's Own Scale Virtual Library. So thank you for that, Charles. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. We're not sh- too short of two hours here. I've taken up a bit of time. But uh, it's been a fascinating insight into the development of this set of rules all held loose. I'll put a link up in the show notes to the War Games Vault. Um, and I wish you every success with it, David. I, I really do. I think it's a really quality product. 
Thank you, much appreciated, and thanks again for having having me and Charles on. Not a problem at all. Thank um, you. I will I will be holding you both to uh, that return visit at some point in the future, but uh, I'll wish you both a happy new year, and let's see what 2021 brings. Hopefully, maybe a, a meet up at the Joy of Six or one of the shows uh, in the north. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Thanks very much, gentlemen. I will uh, sign off. Uh, Thank you again. And to the listeners, uh, thank you for listening. Pick up all hell let loose. Mademoiselle from Welcome back to the studio, and as ever, a big thank you to the guests, David Basileski and Charles Rowntree, especially taking time out of their day on New Year's Eve, and I wish them a Happy New Year. Uh, Also, a big thank you to you, the listeners, for continuing to download the podcast. I'm really pleased with where we have gotten to with the numbers, which seem to be back where they were prior to the last weekend at the start of 2020 so that's amazing uh, it's really motivating for me to keep this podcast going and keep the episodes rolling out of the production line and of course i can't go without saying a big thank you to the patriots who support me on patreon you really do help to keep the lights on in god's own, own scale studio if you're interested in supporting the show please check out my patreon at patreon.com forward slash God's own scale. Every penny really does help. I have a packed schedule of guests lined up for the next few months, so loads more to come. And for the Patriots, watch out for a live paint and chat, which will be uh, forthcoming probably at the end of January, beginning of February, but more details on that at another time. Uh, One last thing, don't forget to enter the competition that I set in the Christmas episode uh, to win a gaming mat of your choice from Tiny War Games, a 6x4 mat, uh, or a gift voucher from Bacchus. Details are in the Christmas show. I may have set rather a tough task, so I'll take any three of the nine cultural references, and if you've listened to the episode, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you get three of those references, uh, they'll get you into the draw. Entries to God's Own Scale at gmail.com. I'll likely close the competition at the end of the end of January, which may be the the next show, maybe the one after that, uh, and then make the draw in the first show of February. So get entering. Your chances of winning at the minute are pretty good. I've got to say, my mailbag hasn't been bulging with uh, entries at this moment in time. Okay, that's enough from me, wittering on. Play nice, keep safe, and as ever, keep talking about sex. Brother Bertie went away to do his bit the other day. With the smile on his lips and his left hand and fixed upon his shoulder, right and gay. As the train moved out, he said, Remember me to all the birds. Then he wagged his paw and went away to war, shouting out these pathetic words. Goodbye, goodbye, 
wife a dear baby dear from your eye. Though we talk so fast, I know, I know, I'll be single the death we don't so cry, don't cry. There's a silver lining in the sky. Don't cry, don't cry. There's a silver lining in the sky. Oh, 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 o